This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On Tuesday, May 11th, 2010, a man comes home from work. He enters the house he shares with his wife and her three children. He sees blood outside the entrance door. And when he goes inside, it's completely silent. Downstairs, he finds a dead man. He immediately calls 112. And while he's on the phone with emergency personnel, he finds the two bodies of his wife's children, 15-year-old Björn and 12-year-old Linnea. This is the story about a horrible triple homicide that took place in a small town called Härnösand in northern Sweden. Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. I want to start by telling you some wonderful news. Up until now, I've been doing this podcast all by myself. I've been doing the research, the writing, the recording, the editing, everything was just me. But now I'm happy to announce that I have one more person on the True Crime Sweden team. Her name is Johanna Udstål Friberg, and she is the one who has researched and written this entire episode. I hope you will like it as much as I do. Thank you so much, Johanna, for helping me out, and welcome to the True Crime Sweden team. This is a story that wasn't so familiar to me, but it's a really interesting case, and Johanna grew up close to where all this took place. So she has been following the case closely. Let's start by getting to know the people behind the case a little bit first. This story is about a family from a town called Härnösand. It's on the east coast of Sweden. The family consists of Mona, the mother, Lars Göran, her husband, and Mona's three children from two previous marriages. Mona was born in 1957, and she married a man named Thomas Svärd, and in 1988 they had a son, Ragnar, together. But when Ragnar was about one year old, they separated, and she soon after that met a man named Mats Berglund. Mona and Mats got married, and they had two children, Björn, born in 1995, and his little sister, Linnea, born in 1997. But the relationship between Mona and Mats didn't last, and they got a divorce, 
Mona met a new man, and he was almost ten years older than her. His name is Lars Göran. They also get married and live as a family with her three kids in the town of Hannesand. Not much is known about Mona, the mother of Linnea, Björn and Ragnar. We know her marriage to Lars Göran was her third, and they didn't have any children together. She was, as I said, born in 1957, uh, so she was 52 years old when the horrible events took place. This is a complicated family with a lot of different names, so I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here. Her previous husband, Mats, husband number two, and Mona, they had two children together, Linnea, 12, and Björn, 15. And they both went to the same school in Härnösand. Linnea was in sixth grade, and Björn was about to finish his first year of high school. Linnea is described as a quiet and caring young girl who loved horses. She wore glasses and had her straight, long brown hair in a ponytail most of the time. It has been difficult to find information on Björn, but from what is known it seems like he was just an ordinary 15-year-old kid doing what most boys his age does. He adored his older brother Ragnar, and they got along fine for the most part. Let me tell you a little more about the troubled young man called Ragnar Nilsson. He was the only child of Mona and Thomas Svärd, the first husband. At the time of the murders, he was 21 years old and still in high school due to many years of skipping classes. Ragnar has short brown hair and sad puppy eyes. His friends from high school describe him as quiet and shy, someone who kept to himself most of the time. He didn't draw any attention to himself, but sometimes he could become very angry and yell at teachers, a high school friend of his says. His parents separated when Ragnar was only one year old, but despite this, he spent a lot of time with his father growing up. This is very common in Sweden, that the mother and the father share custody of the children after a divorce or a separation. Usually the children live with the mother one week and with the father the next week. So the children move back and forth between the parents from the age of three or four years old. Before that, most parents switch more frequently to make it easier on the children. For Ragnar, it meant that he stayed close with his father throughout his childhood. His father lived on a farm outside of Hannesand, only about 12 miles from where his mother lived. Now that you know a little more about this family's background, we are going to get into the events of that day. But I want to start by giving you an insight to the place and the town they lived in. Sweden is about the size of California, 450,000 square kilometers, or 175,000 square miles. But when California has almost 40 million people living there, Sweden only has 10 million. Needless to say, 
There are a lot of sparsely populated areas in Sweden, and this triple homicide takes place in one of them, in the small town of Härnösand, in the province of Ångermanland. Triple homicides are very uncommon in Sweden. In the past 20 years, only six similar murders have occurred. Five of them had victims that belonged to the same family. At the time of the murders in 2010, about 17,000 people lived in Hannesand. It is a beautiful place in the northern part of Sweden, overlooking the Baltic Sea. Hannesand was founded in 1585 by the Swedish king Johan III. He was the son of Sweden's first king, Gustav Vasa. On a side note, up until 1523, Sweden was ruled by King Christian II of Denmark. But when Sweden won the War of Liberation, Gustav Vasa was proclaimed King of Sweden. Now that you know a little bit about the town that this all took place in, and also got a little bit of a history lesson, let's get into the events of that day. The family lived in a house that was built in 1909. It's a wooden house with a vertical wood paneling, just like most houses in Sweden. And the house is painted in a light blue color. The house has three floors, an entrance floor, a second floor, and a basement. There are bedrooms and a bathroom on the second floor. Kitchen, living room, and a guest bathroom are on the entrance floor. The basement has a bedroom, a boiler room, and storage rooms. The basement is also accessible from the outside, through stairs descending to an entrance door. It was a beautiful May evening in Hannesand, when Lars-Göran Spong came home from work that day. Lars-Göran worked at the county administrative board in Härnösand as a head curator, or curator, I'm not sure how to pronounce that to be honest. And he was very active in local politics. He was 62 years old, a thin man with neatly combed hair and thick black eyebrows. He wears glasses and has a compassionate look to his face. He got married to Mona in 2004, six years prior to the murders, and they bought the blue house on a suburban street called Artillerigatan in 2005. On that beautiful day, May 11, 2010, Lars Göran parked his car outside his home and noticed pools of blood on the doorsteps of the entrance. He walks in and calls out to find if anyone is inside the house. He follows the blood and he goes down into the basement and he sees a man, all covered in blood, lying on the floor in the boiler room. He panics and he believes that he is looking at the body of his stepson Ragnar, 
and he immediately calls 112, which is the European 911 number. Here is the transcript of the beginning of that 112 call. Lars Göran says, There's a boy called Ragnar Nilsson who somehow got hurt. There's blood everywhere. Operator. Is he breathing? No, I don't think so. Can you try giving him CPR? Yeah, sure, but I need to turn him. Hold on. Wait, no, it, it's not Ragnar. It's someone else. Okay, ambulance is on his way. Just stay calm. Oh my god, what is this? Just take it easy now. Stay with me. No, no, no. No, there's two more. It's the children, too. What are you saying? An axe. He used an axe. Operator says. We'll have to send the police. Yes, oh my god, send the police. Operator. How many people are in there, you said? It's two. It's two. Two children, too. Can you see if the children are breathing? No, they are hit in the head. An axe. I see the axe over there. Oh my god. The police and ambulance arrive at the scene shortly after. Lars Göran is acting very confused and he is clearly in shock. The officers quickly make him the prime suspect of these heinous crimes. By being married to the children's mother and living in the house where it happened, and also being the first one on the scene, that is something that tells the officers that it's very likely that he at least knows something about what what's going on. They take him into custody and start questioning him on his whereabouts that afternoon. The police place a call to Mona, who is still at work. They tell her to come home, but does not explain in further detail why. Witnesses in the neighborhood later states that they noticed the 52-year-old mother coming home from work, unbeknownst to what had happened to her kids. She had a very serious look on her face and was welcomed by the police and a minister of a local church. The witnesses heard her screaming uncontrollably after she realized the reason why she was called back home. The minister placed his arm around her shoulders, and they both got into a police car parked in the driveway. They made sure that she never had to enter the house. After Mona's third and present husband, Lars Jöran, was arrested, the police also found Ragnar's father and Mona's first husband, Thomas Svad, and brought him in for questioning too. It all happened very fast, and it wasn't until a couple of hours later that people started to ask where Ragnar was. They looked inside the house, 
They tried his phone, and they searched the surrounding areas. But the Ragnar was nowhere to be found. One clue to Ragnar's whereabouts was the fact that Mats's car, a white Volkswagen Jetta, was nowhere to be found. Unless Mats had someone give him a ride to the house, his car should have been parked outside the house. And just to be clear here, the man that was found dead inside the house next to the two children were the children's father, Mats, Mona's second husband. When the news of the murders hit media, it practically exploded on social media. The television reported on it and the newspapers as well. Since 1989, only seven people have been murdered in Handersand, and there had definitely not been any triple homicides. The tragedy of May 2010 increased that number to ten people. People were gossiping all over town, and the mysterious disappearance of Ragnar was only fueling the interest. By the time sunset in Handersand that night, Facebook and the rest of internet was overflowing with posts discussing what happened and who could have done such an horrible thing. Two men in their sixties was arrested and Hanusand would never be the same again. Early in the morning the day after, in a coastal city about 200 kilometers north of Hanusand, that's about 130 miles, a captain of a cargo ship headed for Russia later that day noticed something out of the ordinary. A young man was lurking around the ship and approached a couple of his employees. The man was carrying a lot of money and he kept offering them money to board the ship. When the captain learned of this weird behavior, he got suspicious. Without knowing anything about what happened in Hanusam the day before, the captain contacted the local police. While they were waiting for authorities, he struck up a conversation and tried to make small talk with the young man. He did not respond at all, but he waited quietly for the police to arrive. As you might already have figured out, that young man was Ragnar Nilsson, the eldest son of Mona. He was in a very confused state of mind when he was taken by police just outside the city of Umeå. The truth about the triple homicide in Hanesand the day before was about to be revealed. You are now going to hear Ragnar's own story about what took place that day. And I want to give you a little warning here. There are some gruesome descriptions of the events that took place, so feel free to skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear about it. back on Tuesday 11th, 2010, in the afternoon, and Ragnar is sitting in the kitchen when he hears Björn's steps on the front porch, heading for the door. 
The door makes a clicking sound when it opens, and Bjorn steps in to see Ragnar moving quickly towards him. As the door closes behind Bjorn, Ragnar has already stabbed him multiple times in the chest. He keeps stabbing him in the neck, in his arms, and in the head, while holding him in a tight grip. The murder weapon was not one of the knives Ragnar had purchased before this. Instead, he used a knife from the kitchen. When the police searched the murder scene, they later found the knife in one of the kitchen drawers. When Ragnar is done stabbing Bjorn, he lets go of him and leaves him lying on the floor in the hallway, bleeding profusely. He then goes into the living room, where Linnea is lying on the couch watching TV. She looks up at him, sees the blood and the knife in his hand. Ragnar states to the police that Linnea started screaming hysterically as he approached her. What are you doing? What are you doing? He first stabbed her in the head, then multiple times in the chest. He stabbed her until she, according to his statements, looked dead. After killing his brother and sister, he dragged them one by one down the stairs to his basement bedroom. He tried to hide them under his bed, but they wouldn't fit completely. He went upstairs again to clean the blood away from the living room and the hallway. For this task, he used a bucket and a floor mop, which were later found on the bottom stair. Everything took about 30 minutes, and by the time he had finished cleaning up the blood, Linnea's cell phone started ringing from the living room. It was Mats who was going to pick her up to go to the stables with her. Remember, Linnea was really into horses. Mats would usually just park the car outside the house and give them a call, and the kids would go out to the car. He did the same thing this day, but this time he didn't get an answer from Linnea. Instead, he called Bjorn's phone, but still nothing. He then tried the phone in the house, but without a response. Ragnar was sitting, listening to all the phones ringing between 3.57 and 4.05, according to the phone records. He realized that Mats was sitting in his car outside, and he went downstairs to get the axe. He put on a pair of gloves, went outside and sat down in a patio chair near the main entrance. He could see Mats from a distance, parked in his white Volkswagen. When Mats turned the ignition off and got out of the car, Ragnar was watching his every move. He waited for Mats to come closer and heard him asking, Where is Linnea? Ragnar said nothing, but he attacked him with a heavy swing to his head. The first strike does not hit Mats, and Mats quickly turns and starts running back to the car. 
Ragnar follows him and strikes him again in the head, again and again, until Mats is on the ground. This all takes place outside their house, in a neighborhood, with houses close by. But it happens in such a short period of time that no one notices. Ragnar then continues by dragging Mats's dead body down to the basement with the axe still in his hands. When he passes by his bedroom, he goes back to Bjorn and Linnea and give them each a strike with the axe right in their heads. Mats is then placed on the floor in the boiler room, and that is where Lars Jaran finds him about two hours later. After hiding the bodies, Ragnar takes Mats's car and starts driving. Part one of his plan was executed. Now it was time for part two, to start a new life in another country. Ragnar drove west all night towards Norway. He made a stop in a town called Brekke at a gas station where he changed his clothes, later stating that they smelled funny and he needed to get out of them. The police found a garbage bag containing socks with blood stains, and the blood later showed that it came from the victims. They also caught Ragnar on surveillance cameras in that gas station. Fifty kilometers, or about thirty miles, from the Norwegian border, in the small village of Duved, he ran out of gas. He left the car behind and started hitchhiking eastbound, abandoning the plan to enter Norway. In the trunk of the white car parked by the road, a pair of blood-stained sweatpants were later found. The blood could be traced back to Mats, Björn, and Linnea. Traveling both by bus and car, he eventually found himself standing by the side of the road in Doksta, that's a small town about one hour north of Hanesand, where the murders took place. He was back on the east coast of Sweden again, not at all according to his plan. It was now 4 a.m., and Ragnar was picked up by a man called Rolf Berglund, a 50-year-old truck driver from Piteå, traveling north. Rolf noticed a young man with a backpack from afar. He felt sorry for the seemingly troubled man with the sad puppy eyes and gave him a ride. Rolf was driving for about two hours with Ragnar by his side. He later says to reporters that he didn't notice anything out of the ordinary about him. The boy was quiet, and he didn't say much. There were no noticeable traces of the homicides on his clothes or anything. He hid his emotions very well, Rolf says. When the truck enters the city of Umeå, Ragnar asks to be let off. It is not known how Ragnar ended up loitering about in the harbor, asking to be let on board the Russia-bound cargo ship. 
He has no recollection on how this came about, and there are no known witnesses. When Ragnar is taken into custody, the mystery of the tragedy seems to be solved. However, when the perpetrator is revealed to be the older brother of the victims, we are all left with one question. Why? Part of the answer to that question might lie in Ragnar's childhood. When Ragnar was six years old, a baby brother, Björn, was welcomed into the family. Mona had met Mats a few years before, and they were now a family of four the weeks when Ragnar lived with, with his mother. According to people close to the family, Ragnar was very excited about his little brother. He treated him with care and went out of his way to do the best for him at all times. Björn had asthma from a very early age, and people have told stories about how Ragnar always kept a close eye on Björn when he had his asthma attacks. He would stop whatever he was doing and run to Björn's rescue every time it happened. And three years later, Linnea was born and Ragnar seemed equally excited about her. Overall, people seemed to agree on the fact that Ragnar loved his younger siblings when they were little. Things pretty quickly took a turn for the worse, though. When Ragnar was questioned by the police, he told them that he felt very jealous of Björn and Linnea. He felt like he, as the oldest child in the family, had to take a lot of responsibility and do a lot of boring work, such as chop wood and help with other chores around the house. He also felt like they got much more attention from Mats and Mona than he did. Ragnar never told anyone about his feelings of resentment towards Bjorn, Linnea and Mats growing up. When he turned nine, things started to spin out of control. Many things contributed to this. For one, Mona and Mats' marriage was beginning to fall apart, and the family went through a rough time. Secondly, Ragnar was in his fragile preteen years, and when he hit puberty, he couldn't keep his bottled-up emotions on the inside anymore. So he started acting out, both at home and in school. A friend of Mats's says that he noticed that Ragnar had problems with empathy, and he also says that Mats had told him that he did not feel safe leaving Björn and Linnea alone with Ragnar. When Ragnar started junior high, he began having tantrums in the classroom. He would get so mad that he started throwing stuff, kicking and throwing furniture around. His classmates were all afraid of him. Between these rages, he was very quiet and shy. At the same time as this was going on, things were turbulent around the house. 
with a divorce finalized a couple of years later, Mona met Lars Göran and moved in with him in the blue wooden house on Artillerigatan. Ragnar was now 17 years old and in high school. He was intelligent, but he didn't put any effort into his schoolwork, and he finished most of his classes with Fs. He would stay at home for longer periods of time, but sometimes just show up unexpectedly to everyone's surprise. When he was in school, he kept to himself, and he would become very upset with the teachers if they asked him where he had been the previous day. Ragnar stayed in high school long after students his own age had graduated and was still enrolled in high school as a 21-year-old when he committed these crimes. About the same time as Ragnar started high school, he became obsessed with bodybuilding and fitness training. He went to the gym every day, friends says. Ragnar did not have a lot of friends but he had a couple of close ones who had known him since he was little. While he kept to himself in school, he stayed close to these old friends. Every summer they took a road trip to a cabin outside of Hannesand and spent a couple of nights in the outdoors together. As his friends grew up and graduated high school, they all moved on with their lives. Ragnar was stuck and was once again experiencing a period of instability in his life, when his circle of friends were scattered around Sweden for university studies, and he was stuck still in high school. He became more and more isolated, and eventually stopped going to the gym. He spent most of his time in his bedroom in the basement floor of the blue house that he shared with his mother, Lars Jörand, and every other week with Björn and Linnea. He also spent a lot of time with his father on his farm, where he also had his dog, Jullo. By this time, he felt like Jullo was the only friend he had left, and anger, anxiety, and frustration kept growing inside him every day. He sporadically went to school, and about a month before the triple homicide, he decided to leave everything behind and run away from his so-called life. He placed a phone call to his mother and said, Mom, I'm at the airport in Stockholm, and I have a ticket to Chile in South America. He never told anyone that he was leaving, and he spent ten days overseas. Once in South America, he realized that even though he had left the country, he couldn't leave his thoughts behind. He felt betrayed by his mother and Bonus father, jealous of his siblings, and abandoned by his friends. He was all alone in the world, and in his frustration, the murder plan started to form and take shape. Dark thoughts went through his mind, and he fell deeper into depression and mental illness. Something had to be done. He could not go on like this. He came back to Sweden on May 5th, only six days 
before the murders. When he got back from the trip, he joined a boxing club to learn how to fight. He withdrew 65,000 Swedish kroner. That's about 7,500 US dollars. He withdrew all that from his bank account and went shopping for a new wardrobe. He bought a knife and an axe and started to make his own crossbow in his basement bedroom. On his computer, the police found he'd been searching for things like how to kill someone, poison, murder, and other kind of methods of violence. His plans varied from blowing Mutz's car up when he and the kids were leaving the house, to cyanide poisoning, and he also considered burning the house down. He eventually settled for a plan involving a knife and an axe, and was about to commit the crimes on May 10th, the day before the actual murders happened. While he was preparing the knife and the axe, he accidentally cut himself really bad and had to go to the hospital for care. This only postponed his plans one day, though. On the 11th, he was determined to go through with it, despite his injured hand with stitches along his finger. It was about 3.30 p.m., two and a half hours before Lars Jöran came home from work. Earlier that day, Ragnar had lunch with his father, Thomas, at a local Chinese restaurant, and he also went to the library to pick up a new library card, since he had recently lost his old one. He left the library at a quarter to two and went home to the blue house on the street after Lerigatan to wait for his younger siblings to come home from school. He carried a backpack full of clothes, a knife, an axe, and the remaining cash in a sock, carefully stored in the backpack. Linnea had finished school at about 2.30 p.m. and walked back to the house. She was looking forward to going to the stables later that afternoon to take care of and cuddle with the horses. Bjorn, the 15-year-old, left school at about 3 o'clock, and also went straight home. After many hours of questioning, Ragnar said that he had always known that Linnea was Matze's favorite child, and that Björn was his mother's favorite. And he despised the way Mats was treating him. He wanted to move to his father full-time, but Mats and Mona wouldn't let him do that. Initially, when Mats had just met Mona, and they lived together, the three of them, Ragnar and Mats had a pretty good relationship. But this gradually changed when Mona and Mats separated. The relationship between Mats and Ragnar ended completely when the separation was a fact. The only time they saw each other was when Mats came to pick up his kids. When the murders happened, Ragnar had not had a conversation with Mats in nine 
years. No one could even imagine how Ragnar really felt about Mats. Now that Ragnar was found and held by the police, they started to unravel the horrible story of how Ragnar had become fixated and come to hate his bonus father, Mats, and his siblings, with such a frenzy. He was very cooperative with the detectives and told them everything they wanted to know. The answers were impossible to grasp, though. It seemed as if Ragnar, in his own mind, had a completely skewed perception of reality, which immediately made it obvious that he was suffering from some kind of mental illness. Ragnar was tried and found guilty of first-degree murder. The trial was over within three months of the murders. In Sweden, we don't have the plea, not guilty by reason of insanity. But you cannot sentence someone to prison if they are mentally ill. So the court first makes a ruling on whether the person is guilty or not. And if the verdict is guilty, the defendant is sent for a psychiatric evaluation. If he or she is found mentally ill, they are sentenced to psychiatric care, not prison. This is what happened to Ragnar. He was found guilty and found to be mentally ill and was sentenced to institutional psychiatric care with special discharge review. It basically means he could spend the rest of his life locked up in a psychiatric ward. There's no time limit. But he is up for review every now and then. And if he is considered mentally stable during a review and the doctor recommend that he be released, he will most probably be let out into society again. Something completely unknown was revealed about Ragnar when he went through the psychiatric evaluation. It turns out that he is in on the autism spectrum. He was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. For those of you who don't know what autism or Asperger's ASD for short is. Let me tell you briefly what typically defines this disorder. ASD is a developmental disorder characterized by significant difficulties in school interactions and nonverbal communication, along with restricted and repetitive patterns of behaviors and interests. They are often intelligent, if not smarter, than people without ASD. However, they often struggle with social interaction. Kids who don't have this disorder know instinctively how to interpret the tone of voice, facial expression, or behavior of others. When you have ASD, you must acquire these social skills by having someone teach you how to behave, and how to talk to other people. If people around you 
don't help you develop those skills. You are most likely going to fail in all attempts to create sustainable friendships and relationships with other human beings. Many children with undiagnosed ASD suffer tremendously by feelings of dissociation and loneliness growing up. When Ragnar started acting out at home and in school as a nine-year-old, his parents went to a psychologist with him. He underwent therapy together with his parents and sometimes talked to the psychologist alone. But Ragnar was never evaluated for autism, ADHD, or any other neuropsychiatric disability. When the therapy treatment wasn't working, they stopped it and no other help was offered to Ragnar. And he did not realize himself that he was falling deeper and deeper into depression and confusion. Many people believe that the reason Ragnar became a murderer is the fact that he has Asperger's syndrome. And many people with Asperger's syndrome became very upset because they felt targeted as criminals. Perhaps it is in human nature to always try to understand the world around us. But because Ragnar killed three people doesn't mean that people with Asperger's are violent at all. It is just as rare that a person with autism commits a crime as any other person. But when someone with autism does it, the reasons behind it is not always easy to understand. From the outside it seems strange, but within a person with ASD it may seem very reasonable and logical. The brain functions differently with ASD, but it does not mean that ASD causes violent behavior and homicidal tendencies. While perpetrators generally have drug problems or a criminal lifestyle, criminals with Asperger's syndrome usually do not. Another very odd criminal case concerning a perpetrator with autism is the 31-year-old man who killed his psychologist in 2006. The man started therapy with a 50-year-old female psychologist in 2001. He became very fixated with her and began stalking her. Five years later, on a sunny summer day, he waited for her in the stairwell of her clinic, armed with several knives. He stabbed her sixty times, and then he walked straight to the police to report what he had just done, still covered in blood and with a knife in his hand. In this case, the court also found him guilty, but he was not considered to be mentally ill and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The fact that the 31-year-old had Asperger's could be a clue to why he had committed the crimes in that manner, but it does not excuse or explain the deed itself or the motive. When someone is convicted of a crime, the court awards damages against the injured party. The amount of the damages is claimed by the injured party and awarded by the judge. In this case, 
Ragnar's mother, Mona, did not file for any damage claims against her son. She wants to be there for him and not make his adjustment back to society more difficult than it already is. And just one last thing before we wrap this case up for today. Yesterday I went out to dinner and drinks with some colleagues of mine. The office I work at, we have offices all around Sweden, and one of them is located in Härnösand. And as I was so caught up in this case, I asked a guy from the Härnösand office if he heard about Ragnar Nilsson and the triple homicide. And he says, yeah, of course I've heard of it. It happened in my hometown. And I said, so how old are you? Did you know him? And I thought I would get an answer like, no, I didn't know him, but I've seen him in town or something like that. But he answers that, yeah, I knew him. We used to go to parties together. We were hanging around in the same crowd. And I was like, oh my God, you met him? What was he like? Tell me everything about it. And to be honest, I haven't told people at work that I do this podcast, so I couldn't reveal why I knew so much about the case. But I was just, you know, trying to be politely curious. And uh, he told me that uh, he went to parties with Ragnar several times. Ragnar was always quiet. He didn't say much. And I asked him, what do you think of him? What was he like? What was his personality? And his answer was, well, he always seemed kind of weird. You couldn't really say what was wrong. He didn't say or do anything, but he just seemed weird. So that's my little insight into this case. You might think that Sweden is the smallest place ever. And frankly, it seems like it is. Well, I just wanted to add that in there because it happened last night and I was recording today. And I thought it was a fun story to tell you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you again, Johanna, for researching and writing this episode. It was a really interesting story. I would still be really happy if you would send me questions, if you have any, for a future Q&A episode. You can email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on social media. I have Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden. Or join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook to talk more about the cases. But now it's time to get into the fun facts about Sweden. Today I'm going to tell you a little bit about one of our most famous writers. The children's book writer Astrid Lindgren. If I mention that she wrote the books about Pippi Longstocking, The Brothers Lionheart, 
Ronja, the robber's daughter, and Carlson on the roof. You might know who I'm talking about. Astrid was born on November 14, 1907, in a small town called Vimmerby, in the province of Småland, in the southern parts of Sweden. She had an older brother, Gunnar, and two younger sisters, Stina and Ingjärd. She was interested in writing at a young age, and her teachers often read her stories out loud to the rest of the class. When she was 14 years old, she had her first article published in the local paper, Vimmerby Tidning. She started working at the local paper, Vimmerby Tidning, and worked there for two years. She ended up pregnant, and the father was the head editor of the paper. He wanted to marry her, but she said no, and she moved away from the town. Her son, Lars, was born in 1926, when Astrid was only 19 years old. He was placed in a foster family, and she continued to Stockholm to work. When her son was four years old, the foster mother got sick, and Astrid went to get him, and he was placed with her parents back in Vimmerby. Two years later, she married a man named Sture Lindgren, and as soon as they were married, her son Lars came to live with them. Her son describes her as an unusual mother. She wasn't the kind of mother who would sit on a park bench and watch the kids play. She participated. And I believe she had as much fun as I did, if not more, he says in an interview. In 1934, Astrid gave birth to her second child, a little girl named Karin. In 1940, Astrid's daughter Karin was sick in pneumonia, and she asked her mother to tell her a story. What do you want me to tell you about? Astrid asked. Tell me about Pippi Longstrump. That's what Pippi Longstocking is called in Sweden. Karin made up the name right there and then, and Astrid started to tell her a made-up story about Pippi Longstocking. Later, she wrote down the stories, and sent them to a publisher, and the rest is, as they say, history. She has been published in 101 languages, and has sold over 160 million books. Her books were a big part of my childhood, and my favorite story was the one about Mardi. In Sweden, she's called Madicken. I loved her and her sister's crazy adventures. And I was a lot like her sister Elizabeth, or Elizabeth as she's called in the English version. And me and my sister also had similar dresses as they did in the film about Marty or Madicken. I also read these books to my girls when they grew up, and my youngest daughter, Maya, she totally loved Emil or Emil, as he called in Swedish. In uh, Vimmerby, where Astrid was born, they now have a large outdoor park 
with all the characters from her stories. We went there a few times when the girls were younger. In the park, you walk around and see all the different villages that are described in the books. There are live actors playing all the characters around the park, and they interact with the visitors. I remember that we stopped for a fika, and we were sitting outside with our coffee, lemonade, and cinnamon buns, when all of a sudden, the thieves from the Pippi Longstocking story, Dunde Karlsson and Blom, they ran past us. One of them grabbed a cinnamon bun from our table and kept running. And close behind came the not-so-smart policemen from the story, Kling and Klang. Our kids were so upset by the stolen cinnamon bun, but this made everything so much more real. And if you wonder, we were handed a new cinnamon bun by the lady that worked in the cafe. This was probably one of their daily routines. But if you ever visit Sweden with children, make sure you go there for a day or two. It's definitely worth it. And no, I'm not sponsored. I just love the place. Well, that's all for today. I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye. Hey, Doa.